Hello, I'm Damien Venuto. It's September 9th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Last year, two COVID-positive women sent Northland into an 11-day lockdown after entering the region when they weren't supposed to. Reports at the time suggested they were sex workers and gang-affiliated. Now, the release of a 700-page file into the case has revealed that wasn't true and has detailed the bureaucratic blunder behind the case. One of the women is now calling for an apology from the government for the claims she says were fabricated about her. What will happen? And what does this case say about our COVID-19 response? Today, I'm joined by senior Herald writer David Fisher for a discussion about his lengthy reporting into the Northland lockdown. David, this week we saw stories from you about the causes of the Northland lockdown. Your reporting is based on a 700-page police file you received through the Official Information Act. To start with, what sparked your interest in this case, and how long did it take you to actually get all of those files? In March, uh, police had announced that there'd be no charges laid against the women who were the focus of an inquiry that came about as a result of the lockdown in October 2021. Uh, This was the 11-day lockdown, apparently sparked by uh, two women who were on occasion said to be gang-affiliated prostitutes who had apparently used false information to get into Northam while COVID positive. When it was said that there were no charges made, I thought, well, that's really odd, given how strong the assertions were at the time and the muck that had swirled around that. So I made an official information act request to get the police file so I could better understand the decision making. OAA is meant to take 20 working days to come through unless there's a particular need for an extension and police wrote a month later to say, yeah, we do need a bit more time because there's a lot of information that we have to go through. Uh, And I was told I'd get the response by May 6th. As it turned out, it took six months to get the file and not the 20 working days that it was meant to. Have you ever had to wait that long for an OIA? Oh, I've had to wait five years for one, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into what the report said about the sex workers who weren't actually sex workers. Who were these women and how did they end up being allowed into Northland? What police found was that there were three women, not two. Police found that the women were in Northland to work and that they had begun to do work when they arrived in Northland. Uh, One of them had a valid business. The others worked for her. They stopped doing work because they became ill once they got to Northland and pretty much were too ill to work. That's what the inquiry found. The inquiry also found that the business operator had applied for business travel documents on two occasions, the first time under a category that was looked at by MB, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Enterprise, and that application was rejected. The day after the rejection, she applied for travel documents again, this time citing social services as the category that she was applying under. That was a category that the Ministry of Social Development made the decision on, not MB, but MSD, and that's where it went horribly wrong. So the documents that came back not only from police, but from other Official Information Act requests, showed that the MSD staff member meant to decline the application, but accidentally approved it. So how does a mistake like that happen? Oh, you tick the wrong box. (laughs) It could just be as simple as that. The actual ins and outs of it, we don't know. But what I do know is that 
there are emails not only in the police report but documentation that was held by Chris Hipkins that showed that the person that approved the application actually meant to decline it but through human error made a mistake that approved it so genuine valid business travel documents were issued to those women. Now, how did it come to be that the whole country believed that these women were sex workers? The origin of the women being described as sex workers seems to come from questions that were posed by media. Media may have gone there because there was some chatter about this on social media, but nothing actually substantial on which to base it. I think that there probably is an element of the media that is willing to buy into sort of narratives that are spread, particularly on social media. And maybe we need to actually man our defences a little bit more against rumours that are spread on the internet because it seems like untrue stuff can get through sometimes. And that seems to be maybe what happened here. It is one of those things that I have seen happen in a vacuum where there is an intense interest in the story. Media ask questions to try and get answers to fill the gap, to fill that vacuum. And so this myth appears to have grown around that. The myth was given an appearance of substance when Winston Peters popped up to say these women were smuggled north for sex work by gang leader Harry Tam on travel documents that he had for social work. That was also something that was kicking around on social media. But none of this was true. At one point, the PM tried to dismiss the gang chatter to say that she'd seen no evidence. Ultimately, Winston had to apologise for what he had said because what he said about Harry Tam was completely and utterly untrue, as, as was the rest of it. But the damage was done, and to a large extent, the myth maintained. The documents you've received also reveal an extensive police investigation into these women. What lengths did the police go to to track them down? There were two phases to the inquiry, and in both phases, police did what appeared to me to be an incredibly thorough job. The first phase was tracking the women down. There were no holds barred in doing so. Some of the steps, like reporting as stolen cars that were linked to the women, have me scratching my head and thinking, is that really right? <laughs> um, but they really pushed boundaries uh, or, or seemed to have pushed boundaries in doing it. They accessed the Aurora system, uh, which is a CCTV network that records license plates from pretty much every service station in the country. They picked up sightings of one car through that. They used production orders, what people would call search warrants, to get mobile phone records and bank records. They searched social media profiles of a gang tuggy in one instance to see whether or not they could see the women attending that. It was a really, really extensive search. Don't some of these measures step dangerously close to an invasion of privacy to some degree? I think context of the times really important there. Police tend to intrude on people's privacy whenever they do their jobs. And so the issue then is whether or not it's proportionate. In this instance, we had COVID-positive people who were on the loose in a part of the country that had the lowest vaccination rate and one of the most vulnerable populations. Police really went hard to find those women, remembering back to what it was like at that time, and it's kind of hard to do that given you've got two big Omicron humps to get over. But remembering back to what it was like at that time, I don't think most Northlanders would find the steps that they took to be disproportionate, except perhaps for reporting cars that stole them. David, you live in Northland. What was the response like from people at the time about this case? And 
How have people responded learning that it was nothing more than a public service blunder that led to this? Well, anger in both cases was the response from Northlanders. Uh, initial anger that, according to what we knew at the time, that there were a couple of women who had used false information to come north and apply their trade as sex workers. Uh, that felt to Northlanders something that was very uncomfortable. The idea that anyone was going to be able to track their movements seemed like such a long shot given the nature of the work that they were said to have done and how much of that happens uh, under the radar, there were people that just thought, well, this is it, you know, we're going to have COVID let rip in the north and that's the end of it. That anger has switched since the Herald broke the news about the myth that surrounded these women and how their business travel documents came to be granted. And that anger is very much focused on Wellington, the bureaucracy, on the government. This is a part of the country that often feels forgotten by Wellington. There's not much recognition that once you leave Auckland, there's still six hours of driving to reach the top of the country. And the driving that you do, our roads are such a mess. You know, State Highway 1 to Kaitaia is going to be closed for at least another year. After the recent rains, it's only just opened after a year shut. Diversion around State Highway 10 has got two bridges that are just about to fall into the rivers. To find out not only that the error was made, but that it was never really spoken about. How has the government responded to your reports? So the PM was asked about this. She tossed it to Chris Hipkins and then stood well back. Those women received quite a lot of backlash. Do you think they deserve an apology? Well, I think when you go back and you look at everything that we were saying at the time, there were some unsubstantiated allegations being made against them at the time, which we were pushing back on and asking people not to make judgments. It reinforces the overall view that we took at the time that actually we shared information as much as we could so that people were informed about the decisions we were making. So to clarify, we'll apologise to the women or...? Uh, look, we'll continue to, you know, I'll, I'll go back again and have another look at the information at the time, but this was all made public at the time. To my view of things, I thought that was a very glib response. Back at the time, when the lockdown was underway, there was a brief acknowledgement from Hipkins that travel permits were issued in error, but it was a comment that was made in the context of Hipkins saying that the women had used false information. The discovery that the error was entirely one of government's own making was completely sidestepped, as was the silence around the myth that these women were sex workers and gang-affiliated. To a large degree, that wasn't really used at the time, and it was a really useful myth for the government because it took attention away from where the error actually was. Now, one of the women told our colleague Anna Lesk that the government should apologise, not only to her, but to the entire country. How likely is it that we'll see that happen? And is an apology really warranted when these women were never meant to be in Northland in the first place? If there's been no apology yet, I don't think there will be one that comes. And I do think that there is some strength to the argument for an apology to be made. These women were vilified and wrongly painted as border-breaking sex workers, if the government had been very clear at the outset about the nature of the error and where blame lay, I don't think it would have got as out of hand as it did. Once it did get out of hand, I think there's some argument for introspection on the part of the media. The women weren't doing anything wrong, and the media, uh, we carried that for some time. I suppose the, the argument there is that they would have never entered had it not been for this bureaucratic blunder, and then the rumours wouldn't have taken hold. I think that's right. I think that if the blunder had not been made, the women would never have been able to travel into Northland. There would never have been a lockdown. 
there would never have been rumours about prostitution or gang affiliation or whatever it might be. David, do you think the government made the right decision in terms of moving Northland into a lockdown when these revelations first came to light? Once the government had created the circumstances that led to the women being in Northland, lockdown was the only option under the elimination strategy that we had at the time. Vaccination rates were really low in Northland. Northland didn't hit 90% at the time that the country began to open up in December. So on the elimination strategy that we had at the time, a lockdown was the only option. Now, this isn't the only case of poor decision-making during our effort to eliminate COVID. Do you think that we need a Royal Commission of Inquiry into our pandemic response, as some have called for? Or do you think that this is just one of a handful of mistakes in an otherwise successful response? I believe, and I've maintained from about six months into the pandemic or six months into the first lockdown, that we needed to have a Royal Commission of Inquiry to act as a sounding board or upper house of sorts for the sorts of decisions that the government has made. I haven't been of the view that that would be a a corrosive or a negative sort of an institution, but one that would support good decision-making by government and one that would ensure transparency. It's a shame that we haven't had that. I think that we need to have it as a matter of urgency. And I do think it's something that government should be asked about and opposition parties should be asked about as we head into the election next year. Thanks for joining us, David. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on Monday for another look behind the headlines.